With the sports world on pause, we've teamed Greg Linelli and Eric Erlinson together for Power Lunch, an hour to talk lightning hockey, the NHL, and how you're coping with the coronavirus. This is Power Lunch, exclusively on Lightning Power Play via the iHeartRadio app. Center point headman, right to go Kudrop. Score! Patrick Kudrop! Did you enjoy your weekend of actual live sports on your television screen? I know I did. Welcome to another edition of Power Lunch here on Lightning Power Play. I am Eric Erlinson alongside Greg Vanelli, Steve Erznick, as always, putting it all together, producing on the other end and making sure we stay on the air and keep you guys entertained. Yes, there was live sports over the weekend. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. I don't know how much Greg Lanelli, my co-host, can chime in on that. But we'll we'll see if we can kind of prod him down the path a little bit. This is also a potentially big week when it comes to possible NHL news. Big Board of Governors meeting taking place this afternoon. If you've been reading the reports from Pierre Lebrun and some of the other insiders around the league, the Return to Play Committee had meetings throughout the weekend as we get closer to a possible announcement of some sort to what the league might look like when it does return as we all get closer and closer to maybe seeing hockey back on our television screens, if nothing else. And with that, I do want to bring in Greg right now and Greg how was your weekend of watching your grass grow Mm. that's phenomenal (laughs) phenomenal I kid because I care it's a good workout you know compared to uh, whatever was on this weekend NASCAR was on you know was it on in the background no but like I told you before I mean in my house it's just it's tough to watch those things you know, when you got two little ones, you know, one I, wants to I, watch. I feel that. Yeah. One wants to watch whatever she wants to watch. And then the other one, I'm either holding her or feeding her or putting her to sleep. So nighttime is when I'm usually decompressing. And at that point, you know, last night it was the last dance. So, uh, yeah, see, I have, I, I have admitted to you before. I have not been watching. I probably should. It is, it is yeah. pretty intriguing stuff. It was uh, really good. One time I watched about a half an hour of it. I, I do like some of those documentary behind-the-scenes stuff, but I, I guess I just wasn't big into the NBA um, even during those years, so maybe that's why it doesn't yeah. grab me as much. But I did for sure watch Bundesliga action this weekend. There were huh? um, two two games on, 9.30 Saturday morning. There were a couple oh, more boy. games on in the afternoon. There was another game yesterday morning at 10.30. Uh, no doubt about it, I absolutely watched it. <laughs> And uh, the so- the quality of the soccer was pretty good, considering these players hadn't been, you know, in any sort of competitive action uh, in two months. As you know, Europe shut down just a little bit before we did here on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, so the quality of the game I thought was really good. The first goal that was scored by Dortmund in the game that I was watching, uh, just brilliant back heel, and a perfectly executed cross. But the weird thing. And we've talked a lot about what it might look, feel, and sound like without fans in the stands. Yeah, Uh, It was definitely different. You could hear the players clear as day uh, on the pitch. And this is an outdoor arena, mind you. So this is different from what hockey would be on an indoor situation. Um, But you could hear the coaches. You could hear the players. You could hear the referees. And what I was saying before, the big thing that I missed in watching those games was the crowd anticipation. Not necessarily the buzz in the background. I can deal without that. But it was the buildup the, 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 to the crescendo, like that first goal. 
just a brilliant buildup in, in the oohs and the ahs and just that breathless anticipation before a goal is scored, I miss that. I really, really miss that opportunity uh, to kind of have that part of the experience. Now, the, the goal song was played, and they did all the celebrations after the the separation celebration, by the way. They were all kind of away from each other in the corner after the goal was scored. Uh, but it was a very unique and sort of different perspective in watching a game without fans in the stands, and maybe I thought it would have been. I wonder if you think the play suffered because of that in any capacity. It's hard to gauge that early in the resuming of play, but I, I think that's one of the biggest question marks I'm going to have that I don't know if it'll be answered when play does resume, particularly come playoff time, if that's where we go. Are these players going to struggle to find that motivation and kick it up an extra gear with no fans in the stands? And I think that's going to be interesting. Now, E, did these teams, did they have any type of training camp leading up to the first game back? Do you know? They they did. They did? Uh, exactly sort of the way things are being built up here. Gotcha. Started back in, in small group settings, you know, separation. Uh, no coaches were allowed. They're only trainers with masks and gloves. And, you know, so that was the first step. And then they could gradually add a few more as a quarantine, of course, you know, as much as we've talked about with what what it might look like from a hockey perspective. But, yeah, they did have an opportunity to kind of get back and train together as a team uh, as much as they could in keeping distance from themselves. And, obviously, it's hard to do that in a game scenario. And, and you saw plenty of moments where, of course, players are coming together. But uh, the one thing I read um, coming out of the weekend, I think there were eight, either five or eight players that suffered some sort of muscle issue. Mm -hmm. uh, including Gino Reyna, who is one of the rising stars of the U.S. soccer program. Um, he's He plays for Dortmund, and he was scheduled to get his first career Bundesliga start. He's only 17. Uh, he hurt himself in warm-ups. You know, that's a 17-year-old um, who probably thought he was invincible, as most 17-year-olds tend to do, but he got injured, so he even got hurt you know, before he was even able to get on the pitch. But I did read that there were maybe a little bit more muscle-related issues with players, which is not to be unexpected because the one thing that they changed, you know, most soccer you only get three subs during the game. They've changed that to five because of this, you know, at least temporarily. So uh, they do have that aspect in mind as they put these situations back in play. Is that any relation to Claudio Reyna? Is. That's his son. Oh, Very good. Come on. You get a it. point. You get a I point, Greg Just that's amazing. Yes. Where does where does he rank? Where does Claudio Reno rank in terms of best American soccer players? Certainly for his generation of US players, he's top two or three for sure. Mm -hmm. um, where he ranks on the all time, you, you start to think about the Cliff Mc, uh, Brian McBride's, um, Landon Donovan's, Cl uh, Clint Dempsey, the goalkeepers. He's up there, though. He, he is definitely one of the pioneers of U.S. soccer for sure, especially because he was really one of those first guys that played a lot of their um, – in, in Europe. You know, he started in, in over in uh, – I think he was in the Scottish League is where he started. Um, so he kind of really rose up the ranks uh, and was a big part of some of the success, especially that, uh, that 94 uh, U.S. World Cup team that qualified here when it was here in the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. But very, very good, Greg. I'm very impressed with that soccer knowledge. Well, you, you know, it's, it's, I bring up great points and we ask great questions, <laughs> and this is kind of what we do here on the Power Lunch. By the way, I want to wish my mom a happy birthday. Oh, happy you birthday. Know, happy birthday, Mom. We love you. So I know it's uh, weird circumstances, but happy birthday to her. Well, I'm making a prediction on the show. 
Uh-oh. Hockey resumes this year in August. Next year resumes in December. Um, that's where I'm headed. Th- that's kind of where I'm leading. I know we've talked a lot about July. Um, I don't know how much uh, we can expect July at this point because as we talked about on Friday, Friday was supposed to be the final day of the quote-unquote self-quarantine that mm-hmm. the league has asked the players to remain in. Now, that date went by without any – well, good news is, is it wasn't extended, but there was no sort of declaration that it's over. But I think what we've seen and heard in terms of getting players back, first of all, Gary Bettman was on a conference call uh, with what was supposed to be a sports conference um, earlier today, and he said, this this caught me by surprise a little bit, mm-hmm. 17% of the NHL players are currently over in Europe. They're outside of North America. So you have to bring back 17% of the league. Now, how much of those are on teams that may not be in these 24 team scenarios? I, I'm not sure, um, but there's that logistics. So once you get those players over here, they have to go into a two-week quarantine, 14 days. So if that started today... We're, start, we're still not even talking about the beginning of June until players can kind of get back, even in small settings. Because the league has said they don't want certain markets that have their facilities start to open up, such as we do here in Florida. And the governor uh, announced that last week that sports teams can resume training. He doesn't want, say, a Tampa Bay to have an advantage over, say, a New York Islanders who, you know, they're in uh, obviously a deeper lockdown in that area. So there's no competitive advantage for a Tampa Bay situation as opposed to, say, a New York Islanders. So it might not be until all these teams are able to kind of get together before we start to see this fruition. So to get to my long-winded answer, I'm kind of leaning towards what you're thinking, that August is probably the more likely date to at least start this stuff although we might start to hear things pick up in June and then you'll get those training camps potentially in July because we've heard the players talk about, you know, a minimum two weeks, most likely three weeks of a training camp situation just to kind of get back up to speed. Well, you know, when you mentioned 17% of the players in the NHL are over in Europe, my question is right off the bat, how many of those are relating players? Do we have any idea? I I don't. Um, I believe because we had one. Who who was our last player we had on? Um, Blake Coleman. Yeah. It was either Coleman or Verhage. He's in Texas. Carter Verhage. He's in Texas. Um, I, I believe he told us that he didn't think any of the players were in Europe. There were only about three or four players who aren't even in town. Mm-hmm. Um, the only one I'm not sure of. Well, actually, I am. I know because I at least at least early on in this, I know my brother saw Eric Chernak down on Bayshore. So uh, yeah. my understanding is Eric Chernak is still here. So that would be my biggest concern. We know the, the, the Russian players are all here because we see their Instagram photos. And if you're not following with any of those guys on Instagram, I highly suggest you do it. Um, I don't know if any of the Lightning players are over in Europe. There might be some not in town. As we know, Blake Coleman uh, is in Texas. We know Pat Maroon is back in St. Louis. Uh, but beyond that, I'm not sure of, of who's in town or who's not. But it's a small, yeah. it's a very small amount of Lightning players who are not in the, the remote area. Well, now, you know, they're talking about this two hub cities with 12 teams in each, and that's been discussed and remains one of the possibilities, according to some of these meetings over the weekend. So that's, I've read Edmonton and Vegas now are are two of the, the destinations that could accommodate all of those teams because of the hotel space and, you know, maybe the facilities. So 
curious to see if that continues to pick up some pace here when we start talking about other cities that could be in the mix here. Because if it's Vegas and it's it's Edmonton, you know, now you're starting to figure out all right, where does a team like the Lightning go? You would assume Edmonton and you know, when can you start making preparations for practice and, and how will the games look like, you know? Yep, and then the logistics of trying to get twelve teams yeah. uh, into in two different cities. So twenty four teams into that has an NCAA house. tournament feel to it, you know? It, it does with no fans. Way. Yeah. And but then but then like now you're talking about having to spread this out. Now the one thing I think I think we should make clear here is there's a lot of people saying, How can you expand the playoffs to twenty four teams? It would not be a twenty four team playoff. It would be a sixteen team playoffs with play in games is what it would essentially end yes. up being. So it is still a sixteen team format, you know, once you get to the start to the best of seven. But if you're putting them only in two cities, now you're putting stress on ice. Now mm-hmm. your ice time availability in terms of playing games, now you're starting to maybe spread this out maybe a little bit more than I think that we had originally heard because at one point they were talking about trying to do three games a day in you know one potential city. Well, and so I guess... I'm interested to see how that comes out. Yeah, and I, I'm wondering, Tui, if... Are they all just playing in one rink? Or when you talk about these hub cities, are there multiple rinks in those cities that they can go play? That way you can play as many games as you want in that day, but to your point, you're not crushing the ice, so to speak. And I think as long as, and Gary Bettman talked about this maybe a couple of weeks ago, that there are certain requirements the facilities have to have to accommodate the players and staff. If you have rinks like that, that aren't necessarily NHL-style rinks uh, that are being linked to these two hub cities, can you play in multiple rinks in those specific cities to cut down on how much the ice is taking a pounding? Well, and then my one question in that scenario uh, that you just brought up is, this is supposed to be a made-for-TV event, right? Because you can't have fans. And I understand because you can't have fans, you can play these games potentially anywhere. But the one thing that the commissioner has said is they, they want the... This is why the... Uh, the North Dakotas and the Manchester and Hamsters were kind of, you know, put off to the side a little bit is because they want the facilities that are used to handling NHL games, especially if they're going to be on television. You know, the the wires are already in, in place and the cameras can uh, be put back in place pretty easily and, and pretty quickly. Um, you know, so if this is just made for TV and this is all you're, you're, you're doing it as much TV of anything else in the situation, I don't know if you could televise those games that are in different rinks. I think there'd be too much uh, of an issue trying to put it all together. Now, having said that, the league is known for putting outdoor games in California, uh, so anything is possible. But um, I, I just think with the with the TV element involved that you would have to think that they would want to use the NHL facilities just for the games. Now, practices, well, that's a different story. The funny thing is when those two destinations are cited, Vegas and Edmonton, I think of those places as being hub cities for two very different reasons. Vegas, because it probably can accommodate multiple teams. Edmonton, because from from what we hear, the ice is better. Yeah, I don't know what the ice, you know, I don't know what the ice is like in Vegas to hold up, you know, with all those teams on it. Yeah, and of course, in Vegas with the hotels and those, you know, you certainly have a lot to be able to uh, exactly. host as many teams as possible. I don't know what the hotel situation is like in Edmonton. I've been to downtown Edmonton. There's not a huge amount. You know, if you're talking trying to house 12 different teams, uh, it's not a huge amount. It's been a few years since I've been there. I haven't been to the new rink that opened up just a couple of years ago, but I understand that there's a hotel attached to it. 
but you know who are the teams that get to stay there it's you know so there are a lot of things and again as you've said many times greg you can poke holes in whatever scenario the league is going to eventually come up with it's not going to be a perfect situation um but i am interested to see this this could be a big week uh in the news element when it comes to that not just with this situation but the draft as well if nothing else yeah. I, I saw an interview with you i think it was eugene melnick um, who said that, that in one way or another you'll get some sort of news in June, whether it's the actual draft or just the draft lottery, potentially both. Um, so that aspect is still out there, uh, even though there was a lot of pushback on it. But either way, this could be a very big week in regards to learning some sort of news as we inch closer to the return of the NHL. Yeah, and um, just a couple of news items before we get to Brian Engblom. We start talking about the coronavirus and, and where it is. Uh, it looks like Italy just reported only 451 new cases in the country. It's the lowest number since March 2nd. And uh, they're now back to work, and the border is opening for tourists on June 3rd, which is a big deal. Also, England, Spain, Germany, and France all hit two-month lows in deaths over the weekend as well. So hopefully that is... The virus is quickly leaving Europe, and we're not too far behind. Yeah, let's hope. Let's hope, uh, especially here, um, you know, with some of the hardest areas in New York, we're starting to get some good signs. Uh, speaking, I was just talking about New York not being open. I, I saw some uh, Renault La, who works for TVA up in Canada. I guess uh, Andrew Cuomo said that they're ready to start helping the sports teams in New York come back if they know that there's not going to be fans in the stands. So that's a positive step. As I just mentioned, the uh, the Islanders are still in in a situation where they probably would not be able to practice yet and give a competitive advantage to maybe some of the other teams. All right, we want to take a break here right now. We've got Brian Engblom from Fox Sports Sun. Uh, does a color job uh, with the telecast and catch up with him, see what he's been doing, get some of his thoughts on some of the scenarios that we just discussed as well. He is Greg Lanelli. I'm Eric Erlinson, and you're listening to Power Lunch right here on Lenny Power Play. An hour of hockey talk to get you through social distancing. This is Power Lunch with Greg Lanelli and Eric Erlinson on Lightning Power Play. All right, so glad you're with us on a Monday. At least where I am, a rainy Monday, but that's okay. We've been talking about this two-hub city concept featuring 12 teams in each city. That's continued to be discussed. Remains one of the possibilities if the NHL is able to resume the season this year. That's according to Darren Drager. Also, Pierre Lebrun and Bob McKenzie confirm that. They've been reporting on this all the way through. I want to ask our next guest what he thinks of that format and possibly Edmonton and Vegas being the two places where all the teams go to play. Of course, other cities are being considered, but Edmonton and Vegas were two uh, cities that were brought up during this report. But let's bring in Brian Engblom from Sun Sports joining us here on the Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. Brian, good to be with you. Hope all uh, continues to be well for you and your family. And uh, let's get right into it. What do you make of the 2014 kind of two-hub city format. It, it sounds like the league is leaning that way because we've heard this now the last couple of weeks when talks like this have continued, Brian. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Like the last time we talked, uh, no matter what you do, somebody's going to be hurt. Somebody is going to feel left out. Somebody's going to be angry. Um, and so that's just the way it is. This is such a, you know, an un 
such a surreal situation that we have to deal with the reality of it. Um, just for the locations, Edmonton uh, makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, their their facilities are phenomenal, and they have facilities, you know, the practice rink and the main rink right there in one place. They have other places to practice. They got hotels. They've got you know everything they need. Uh, now, I I have not checked lately what the premier of Alberta's stance is. I know he was pretty hard line about not allowing much early on. So I, I, I don't know what the status of that is right now. So obviously that is a huge factor because uh, the politicians and what is allowed and what isn't allowed is a gigantic. It is the biggest factor. Um, Vegas uh, is has, you know, as far as I know, they have enough facilities for hockey. We know they have, you know, tons of hotel space and being able to put, put teams up. There's, there's uh, certainly no problem there. Uh, so uh, very interesting. As far as the, the 24 teams go, um, I, I'm, I still haven't quite made up my mind. Some days, sometimes I go, you know what, I like the 20-team format better. I think it's more fair than the 24. Um, and the team that really makes in the 2014 format the team that really makes out and gets real lucky is montreal because they're they were what 10 points out of playoff spot i mean that's being really generous right it has to be round numbers but you know i was i thought in the 20 team format you're dealing with teams i think that were in within three points of the playoff spot which is fair you know with the remaining schedule that there was so uh a lot of me wants to say, hey, just have it 20 teams. But, you know, we'll we'll see where this goes. I don't know. What, what do you guys think? It's it's hard to say. Um, you know, it, certainly Chicago would probably be a team that makes out like this as well because, you know, look, they traded Robin Leonard at the trade deadline because they knew they were out of a playoff situation and now you would potentially be back in. I, yeah. I, I think it's hard to come up with an idea to where you can make it uh, fair for the teams that are on the bubble, but at the same time also don't make the teams that are at the top of the division, in this case Boston, right. Tampa Bay in particular, right. and just have them sit around while these other teams are playing games. So, you know, one of the more uh, interesting scenarios that had been brought up was doing this round-robin type of situation and then yeah. taking the point percentage from the regular season, adding it together with the point percentage you have in this round-robin, right. and then seeding from there – uh, so then at least those top teams are getting some games in that have some meaning to it, but at the same time, you're still able to open it up. So I, I don't know if that's better suited for a 20 or a 2014 format. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but as you said, I think no matter what you do, you, you, can, you can pick apart some aspect of it that somebody's not going to be happy with. Yeah, that, and if you go to the 20-team format, like I just pointed out Montreal, because they're 10 points out. I think Chicago was six points out. But if you cut from 24 down to 20 teams, then a team, I think it's Arizona. I think Arizona gets cut out, and they had a realistic shot of getting in. I, I don't have it right in front of me, but they were a couple of points out for sure, but they had a chance. So they would really be upset of being cut out of it if it was just 20 teams. Um I guess it's changed, you know, fairly quickly to the two locations from what was looked like was going to be four locations, right, uh, for a long time. Um, my list of the ones, the hub cities that sort of were coming down to the end were Toronto, Vancouver, Edmonton, Vegas, Dallas, and Minneapolis. Is that what you guys had seen? I've seen a lot of that, yeah. 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 
So those were the ones on, on the final list, supposedly, um, that, you know, this would all happen. So if you go to just two cities, uh, obviously travel is one of the biggest things that they're, you know, thinking of and trying to keep, you know, uh, keep that down to an absolute minimum. Uh, and even, even before when it was going to be four cities, then they were talking about just having, you know, one city by the time you got down to the conference finals and the finals. So, I mean, I mean, they've tried to come up with, you know, so many different things and, and rightfully so, you know, to see, you know, you try to work it down farther and farther and see what becomes realistic according to, you know, where we're at in any given point of time. And boy, that's, you know, that's changed uh, a lot day to day up to this point, hasn't it? Yeah, for sure. Brian Engblom from Sun Sports joins us here on the Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. Brian, is it of your opinion that, you know, it looks like we're gearing towards August maybe to ramp up play here with maybe some training camp going on in July and then maybe the start of next season in December? Yeah, I... I, I've heard that. I've heard, uh, you know, getting going in July and then having August and September to finish off this year, taking October off, maybe starting sometime, and then trying to, you know, building, you know, condense things down and maybe stretch out next year's schedule a little and then try and get back on track for the following year. Now, that's projecting a long ways out with still so many variables that. It's almost unfair, but again, you really have to try to put something on the table and say, is this going to work? And if not, okay, it doesn't quite work that way. Then how about we just, you know, jiggle it a little bit, you know, three weeks here or a month there. Um, I've heard of all those, um, whether it was unrealistic or not, I started to get a feeling actually by, you know, sometime in maybe even, uh, middle of June-ish that players will start getting together in small groups. And then, so maybe you might be a little ahead of that, you know, July thing that you're talking about. But again, uh, there's, there's so much speculation. I, and, and all it is right now is speculation. Brian, we, it's been a month, a little over a month since uh, the league went on pause. I know we, we've speculated on this as uh, many times about what the condition the players might be in, but what do you think that would translate to in the quality of the games when we get back, especially if you're jumping into a situation, maybe where you get a couple of games, in, but the, the playoffs will ramp up right away. What's the quality of play that you might uh, expect uh, from so much time off for these players? Well, <laughs> it's a good question. It's definitely be a little scrappy at the beginning. And so that's why everybody wants and needs to play a couple of games. Uh, so there will be some sort of format of, I don't know, playing four or five games, something like that, you know, would, would be classified as league games, I guess, quote unquote, before you even start the round robin. I, I, that's at least my understanding of, of one of the scenarios. I, it's, you can't jump into complete playoffs and elimination right away. You got to give them a chance. You know, you got to give the players a chance to play a couple of games after a training camp. So I don't think it would take as long as maybe people think um, because you're dealing with some yeah rust as far as, as game time um, and game feel. 
But at the same time, you know, these players are overall are in such good shape. And the fact that they're not ground down and that players every year start of playoffs and on really good teams, you get sometimes your major players are either out of the lineup. And that certainly was true this year. Seth Jones jumps out, you know, my mind, you know, take a lightning aside. We know the lightning situation. Seth Jones, without him, Columbus's chances go down incrementally. You know, he's their corner, he's their, he's their uh, Victor Hedman. And so, uh, you know, he's, he's back skating again and he'd be ready to go. And there are countless, you know, numbers. Columbus is actually a good example because they I think they had five guys at my last count who had uh, pretty serious issues. And they were regulars. Uh, and Seth Jones at the top of the list, not the only one. So now you're dealing with teams that are, are really healthy. And that never happens, you know, going into the playoffs in a regular season just because the grind and everything, even just the fatigue level, for players who play 20 minutes a night to 25 or 6 minutes a night if you're a defenseman, those that adds up. And, you know, teams that are in a good position maybe have a chance to back off a couple of minutes here or there on their top guys and sort of get them ready. But the other teams that are grinding to get in, they've been wearing them down to the bone because they got to get in, right? And then we'll worry about fatigue after. So all the circumstances are different. I don't think you would see a, a horrible style of play that some people are predicting. I, I really don't. Um, because especially when the chips are down and the players are going, this is for keeps, you know, and, and this is what we've been waiting all year for. And yeah, it does feel funny, but these are the playoffs. And we know what the mentality of any player who's had even a year or two of experience in the league and has tasted the playoffs. They know what that means, what it feels like and what it tastes like. And it won't take long to get that taste back in their mouth. I'm wondering, Brian, and look, I, uh, it's a hypothetical question here. I'm asking you to, to answer for all these players, and that's impossible to do. But I'm wondering, once we get back playing, to your point, everybody's going to be on the same playing field, so to speak, in terms of being healthy and having uh, all the time off the ice to get back into shape. I mean, everybody's in the same boat. But I'm wondering, you know, are, are teams that get bounced maybe in the playoffs, like a Philadelphia in this hypothetical situation I'm throwing at you, who were really playing well before the pause and play. I mean, do you think they're going to have a, a tough time accepting what happened here? Or do you think most players will say, you know what, it's a tough break, but everybody was in the same boat. And if we get bounced early, we get bounced early. Uh, you're going to hear, well, every year, the teams that lose early on, you hear from them first. And there will be some griping, for sure. But, you know, that's sort of human nature. But overall, I think that, you know, when players get committed and they're told, this is what's happening, we're in here, guys, that's what you get paid to do. So, you know, you jump on board and you go like heck and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. And it's your job to make, you know, the biggest contribution that you can at the highest level. Um, and uh, that really is about, I, I, view, I, I heard this line, I don't know, decades ago. And it's still true today that the playoffs are probably more about will than skill. Yeah, you need the skill, but it's the grind of it. Uh, people, a lot of people just don't understand how what it takes to win four rounds, four best of seven rounds. 
you're talking 20, 20 games, 24 games, 26 games. That's a lot of just, you know, empty the tank every night. Uh, the intensity level and the pressure of every shift and the number of one goal games, you know, winning and losing can really wear you down mentally and emotionally. And you have to be able to stick with it and grind through it. So that's the incredible part about the Stanley Cup playoffs and why, you know, I, I think it's the toughest trophy to win because of all that. Um, and that's the level that the players will have to get themselves to right away. Brian Engblom from Fox Sports Sun joins us here on Power Lunch. Eric Erlinson alongside Greg Linnelli. And Brian, did you catch any of the actual live sports over the weekend? I don't know how much of a soccer fan you are or NASCAR or golf, but did you did you catch any of that? Actually, no, I didn't. I taped the golf, but I have not. That's on my list to catch up on do and do today. Um, but no, I didn't see uh, any of the others. Did it give you a weird feeling? Uh, you guys watching it? No fans or anything? I was watching well, my grass grow, Brian, outside of the soccer being played. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, hey, there's there's another opportunity. There's another Bundesliga game on this afternoon at 2.30. So, Greg, you can have an opportunity to check Let me know out how it goes. Like. Let me know how it turns out. <laughs> no, but, Brian, I, I was saying as uh, in the opening segment that uh, it, it was weird. Without the fans in the stands, you could hear the players clear as day. Uh, of course, most of them are speaking in German, so you can't understand them. But, you know, the, the, you, you didn't have the crowd. The, the one thing that I talked about that I missed was the buildup from the crowd, like the anticipation, oh, yeah. reaching to that crescendo. You really missed that as part of the experience. And, you know, credit to, to the, the first game that I was watching uh, with Dortmund. You know, they played the music when the goal was scored and they had all that celebration go on, but you really miss that crowd uh, participation in it, which which to me, I, I could deal with the run of play, not really noticing the fans, but it, it is in those moments where you're like, man, that's really weird. Yeah, there, there's no doubt. It's, it's going to feel weird, you know, in all the sports. Um, maybe NASCAR would be the exception uh, because those guys are going 200 miles an hour. And, yep. you know, they're in their cars and they can't hear the crowd anyway. So, you know, they might have sort of an advantage if there is one in that in that respect. But a, a lot of adrenaline rush and a lot of, you know, our in-person sports and what we're watching on TV, whether it's soccer, or hockey, football, whatever. Oh, that crowd response, it pumps guys up. Are you kidding? I, You know, that's what's led to celebrations, I think, you know, in hockey and football. And yes, sure, it's the sheer joy of scoring in whatever sport or making the play that you did. But it's the fans and, you know, fans reveling in it, too, that I think has inspired so much of this stuff. Having said that, uh, players get paid to adapt and it'll be a new normal. You know, take a game or two. Um, and hey, in the long run, it'll help them certainly appreciate in a very big way when the fans do get back in the buildings. Brian, you think there's any chance we see fans in the stands for the playoffs, maybe even the Stanley Cup? I, I, I don't know. Um, again, things are changing so quickly. There's, there's a lot of, you know, downright arguing, you know, amongst politicians and state to state. And, you know, you guys have seen it and heard it as, you know, as well as I have. I'm sure it's happening in other countries around the world, too. Yeah, this is right. No, that's right. You're wrong. I'm right. Um, it's somewhere in between the necessity of um, cities and states opening up now. Uh, that's been well documented, so I'm not going to get into that. You can argue it in. 
you know, people still have a choice. I mean, you can't make somebody do something against their will. So if somebody was adamant and said, I'm absolutely not doing that, and that would include, you know, a player, right? I, I mean, who knows? What, what if one player on a playoff team said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that? Uh, that would be a very interesting scenario, wouldn't it? And he said, absolutely, I'm not. I don't believe in this, and I don't want to do it, and I'm not going to take part. It's, you know, it's, it's free will. You'd have to well, let what do you, that What do you make do of that? It. I was going to ask you. So, what do you, I mean, what do you same make? thing I guess for the, the fans only... about whether or not, if in limited capacity, they're going to be allowed to show up, that's everybody's choice. You bring up a good point, E, before you jump in. I was going to ask you that. What if you get it? Because we've heard some rumblings from MLB players talk about, you know, if I have to stay away from my family for more than, you know, a couple of weeks, we're not going to come back. But let's talk about just the, in terms of playing when the virus is, yeah, I guess, still out there. I guess the only flip side would be if these guys do come back, they are under contract to play. How would you handle that situation if you're a player or if you were the league? Uh, my, my opinion, um, as I said a moment ago, that's free will. And this is an extraordinary circumstance that, no, as far as I know, any contract ever written, nobody was thinking about uh, a pandemic and what it might mean to everyone. So my opinion would be if a player absolutely said, I'm not doing this, I am not comfortable, I will not play, would I penalize them? No, I think you would just have to accept it, my opinion. Um, the legalese of it would be looked at. But, I mean, if you have a player like that and you trying to overly force them, what are you going to do, go to court and make them play? I mean, yeah, you know, it doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? You can't force a guy who doesn't want to be there and say, okay, buddy, let's go. You know, we're all in this together. Uh, no, we're not. You know, every circumstance is is different in, in, in that respect. I, I know it's, it's all involved. It's, it's all the same ocean that we're in. But everybody's circumstance is, you know, is, is a little bit different. And that's true, you know, outside of sports. Everybody's sort of in a different boat. There are people who absolutely have to work and want to work because they need the money. Others are absolutely not going to work. I'm fine. And, or others have been working and, and they're, you know, they're careful, but, but they're, they're, uh, you know, they're handling it sort of thing. So we're, we're in different boats in the same terrible ocean right now. So circumstances are different for different families. And that's true whether we're talking about getting the NHL going or any other sport or, you know, the, 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 uh, the country in general. And I do find it interesting along those lines, you know, some of the, I don't want to call it backlash, but some of the hesitancy from some of the players. Drew Doughty was one, but of course we know the Kings aren't in a position uh, to to make the playoffs even in an expanded format. And and most of that dis discussion about some concerns about resuming the season has come from a lot of players who might not be in the playoffs. But we heard Radko oh. Gudis, former Lightning defenseman, now with the Washington Capitals. Of course, the Capitals are in prime position at the top of uh, the Metro Division. He came out and said that the thing should just be canceled. Uh, and he, the quote was, it's a bit sad they are willing to risk the health of so many players for money. And I'm curious, uh, how much how much could peer pressure come into this? Because we know that whatever 
scenarios come through has to be agreed upon between the NHL and the NHLPA, whether that uh, voting for the PA side is just the 31 team reps or they open it up to an entire uh, voting pool for the Players Association. How much would peer pressure, you think, Brian, play into maybe some players who have that? If a majority of them, you know, we're talking 70 to 80% players say that they want to come back, it could peer pressure maybe kind of bring those players back in the fold? That's a great question. In my, in my opinion, peer pressure absolutely comes into it. You're talking about team, you know, the team concept. And according to the things that I've read and you guys have read, is that the majority of players, uh, you know, the ones that, that certainly are on teams that uh, are in a playoff spot, the majority of players wa- want to finish the season. They, they want to go. But you're right. That doesn't mean that right down to, you know, the 20th or 22nd player on a team, that doesn't mean they're all in. It means that there are some out there that don't want to. So it goes back to that question. Well, what do you do? Well, a little bit of peer pressure, you know, can uh, certainly is going to happen um, if, you know, especially you have a major player on your team and he says, I I don't want to do this. I don't want to do it. The team's going to be like, oh, wow, man, we're, you know, we're, we're a totally different team now if, if player X you know, doesn't want to play. But again, extraordinary circumstances, and you have, to, you have to allow that player. Now, some players are going to say, you know, let's talk to them and see if we can talk them into it. Well, that's a pretty fine line. You can make a person really dig in, right, if they think they're being pressure, and then now they're more angry and it's like not a chance, you know, sort of hang up the phone, you know, that attitude. Um, and in other cases, they, may, they might very well work. Um, but then, <clears throat> there, you know, there's a nervousness, uh, I'm sure, from everybody involved that's going to be like, you know, what is this and what's happening? And every day it's going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, this, you know, being I'm I'm kind of projecting here like, yes, you know, we do get down the road and there are games going on that every day players are going to say, okay, well, you know, what's happening today? Is anybody sick? How do I feel? I mean, that's, that's in the air now for everybody, for all of us all over the world right now. So the intensity of that being in groups, uh, being on the teams will be intensified at some point. You think it's, it's got to happen. Uh, when that point is, is what the debate is all about right now, isn't it? Peer pressure is, is a great, great question, Eric. It's going to be, a factor, no doubt. Brian, can you take us into a locker room when a player or multiple players gets the flu and what the protocol typically is in place? And do you feel like hockey locker rooms and organizations are better equipped to handle something like the coronavirus in terms of the precautions that one takes? Because, as you know, there's a lot of cleaning, there's a lot of scrubbing that goes on when it comes to equipment and hygiene anyways. Um, right with the NHL, but also too, you know, when you are dealing with a player or a couple of players who do have the flu, can you make the case the protocol in place there is going to be used to combat the coronavirus? <clears throat> yeah, no doubt. Um, p- players get colds and the flu, and yeah, it's it, it can be a big factor. I mean, some years you get three or four players on a team who are sick and they're playing anyway because you know this. All the chips are down, and again, it's about winning in the playoffs. That's why you play all 82 games. Um, so, yeah, that that happens. Um, those players, of of course, 
you know, try to separate themselves as best you can, but you are in a locker room, you know, situation, uh, you can get them back and forth to, <clears throat> to the games in, you know, different vehicles and not have them, you know, be around constantly. That's, that's usually, you know, what happens. Um, in, in a severe case where a player really gets, you know, sick, then, you know, they'll fly them home, you know, on a different plane or whatever and, until they can recover to a certain point where they go, uh, you know, we can sort of get you back in the mix a little bit. So as far as cleaning and keeping everything clean, you know that every team and every company in the world is, you know, reassessing what does our place look like and what do we have to do? I think that would be the most simplistic answer. I think they're well prepared for that. Everything would have to be completely cleaned down from top to bottom. Any kind of the most scientific sprays and usage of cleaners will be done every room because uh, the rooms are going to be used by multiple teams. You know, it's going to, there's going to be a turnover. So it's not even just those 23 or while well, you're talking about what, 30 people probably, you know, connected to a team at least. Let's just use that number for now. So they're in and out. And then that team is done. Another team's got to come in uh, tomorrow or later on that day, actually. So they got to come in and crews are going to clean it up. So absolutely, all those protocols are going to be down to the inch. They're going to have to be. Um, and uh, I think uh, the rest will be uh, looked at. And, uh, you know, a different ideas will come up perhaps as things go along here. Um, maybe things that weren't even thought of now, you think you think of everything and all of a sudden you go, "Uh Oh, what happens now? Last question for me, Brian, uh, in going back in some of these classic games that have been replayed on NHL network and, and elsewhere, we see a very young spry Brian Engblong popping up all over the screen <laughs> with some of these interviews. Uh, have you, have you looked at any of them? Have you watched any yeah. of those and seen yourself yeah. in, in some of those situations? Yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah, I have. I've seen him watch a couple of games and turning chipping, turning channels, and go, "Oh yeah, that's right, that game." Yeah, it was. Uh, it's it's pretty. It's fun to do it. That's for sure. You, uh, you know, every you have to critique yourself. That's the first thing you end up doing, right? Is, well, why did I say that? Or you know, what happened there? Or whatever. But it is. It, it's fun to sit back and and relax and and just sort of listen to it and watch it too. Um, and some of the games, you know, I remember really well and others I don't. Um, and it's sort of fun to, to go back and, and look and, and watch. Uh, one of the ones that really hit me was, and this is on a couple of weeks ago, it was uh, uh, Boston's comeback against Toronto to win their series. And Toronto had, had the lead early on. It was game seven and it was a massive collapse by the Leafs. And uh, I was between the benches for that one. Randy Carlisle was coaching Toronto and uh, Boston came back and won in, in, uh, in Boston. <clears throat> that one, I'd forgotten some of the details um, and it was interesting to, to listen to it and, uh, and watch that one. But uh, yeah, I've seen several and yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to relive some of these games. And the interesting thing too, and I've seen some comments from people on, on Twitter or whatever in, di in different instances, that how much television has changed and literally HD, the HD cameras oh, have yeah. changed so much in the game and how the game is shot now um, is very different. So when you go back to games that are, you know, 15 and more years old, um, you see the difference 
and it makes the game look slower too. And yes, the game is was slower then than it is now. I've said, you know, we all know that. It's the pace of the game. It's the number of passes, it's the way the puck moves, not just, you know, the, the speed of each individual player. Uh, but also the cameras and the camera angles and the depth that you get from HD as compared to, if you go back to the games when they replay games like from the 70s and early 80s, it looks, you know, like the Flintstones. And it was in some ways, you know, compared to what it is now. But your perception of the game and the speed of the game is different because of the way it was shot and because of the way the cameras were. And one thing I, you know, something I've said to people before and things, something I noticed a long time ago is you go back to the old, old games where there was no advertising on the boards. Eric, I think I've seen this, said this to you before in the past. There was no advertising on the boards, right? The boards are all white. Well, when there's advertising on the boards, you have a frame of reference. When a player is, individual player is skating fast, he's passing things in the background. And I think your, your, your eyes and your brain takes that perception and it really shows you the speed. Well, when all the boards are white and he's not passing things as quickly, it doesn't look as fast. That in combination with the old cameras, it, it makes the game look really slow. Well. You know, I, I can tell you there were a lot of fast players back in the day that would have no problem with the speed, you know, of the game played now. A lot of players, but it just looks different on television. Brian, last question for me. Is there a camera angle you'd like to see TV try when play does resume? Because you're going to have a lot of people listening and watching the game. Nobody's going to be in the stand. So we talk about experimenting with the format to make it interesting when people come back and watch the games but what about the actual camera angles and what you can see on the ice uh yeah there's i have mixed feelings about that um because you know a lot of things have been tried in the past you know we've had the overhead camera what was that espn and abc i think you know the suspended camera on a cable that was used i don't know what the years were i kind of lose track there were some interesting looks there but the problem for me is uh, when you start at adding different looks and different cameras, it becomes a toy sometimes for producers and, and directors and people and, and the, the management who are going, hey, we've got this camera, use it. And believe me, that happens because it costs money. And when it costs money, they're going, we didn't put this in for nothing, so use it. So how much do you use it? And does it, does it add something? Yeah, sometimes. But you have to go through a process to get through that. In my opinion, again, this is all my opinion. And I've seen that happen before where it's overused and I'm thinking, come on, just, just do the game and you know, stay with the flow of the game, which I think is covered pretty darn well with the cameras that, that we have now. There are some that can be used in certain instances. There are cameras that have been used in the boards near ice level, you know, down in the corners uh, that give you an interesting perspective at times, which can be good for replays. But certainly, I think especially changing uh, during the game to different shots, I think it starts to give you whiplash after a while. And, and, you know, it's like just let the flow of the game. It's a great game. Let it take care of itself. 
Well, Brian, it's great to talk to you again, as always. Uh, great to have you on the show. Glad you're doing well. And uh, hopefully next time we talk, it'll be a, more, uh, a better idea of where things are heading and uh, we can all get back to uh, covering and, and watching the game we love so much. All right, guys. Thanks a lot for having me, as always. Yeah, stay safe and we'll keep our fingers crossed that we're getting closer and closer to at least have some sort of uh, schedule in mind. And uh, everybody is anxious. Uh, I know that for more and more sports to come back. Take care, boys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Brian. All right. Thanks, Brian. All right, Brian Engblom, our guest here on Power Lunch uh, on Lightning Power Play. And Greg, I wanted to pass all the world. Steve, you want us to take a break? I know we're close to uh, top of the hour here. Yeah, okay, let's go ahead and take a break. I want to share this quote, make sure everybody hears it, uh, from Gary Bettman uh, from earlier today. We were talking about the testing, so there's an interesting quote here from Gary Bettman. But I'll share that with everybody on the other side. You're listening to Power Lunch right here on Lightning Power Play. The hockey world might be on pause, but Eric Erlinson and Greg Linelli aren't. This is Power Lunch, exclusively on Lightning Power Play on the iHeartRadio app. Hey, welcome back to Power Lunch here on uh, Lightning Power Plays. We close out this Monday, May the 18th show. That's for your purposes there, Greg. I want to make sure you know what day it is. Eric Rollinson alongside Greg Lindelli. And, um, Greg, we were talking at the top of the hour about some of the comments coming from Gary Bettman in regards to uh, trying to find ways for the league to come back. And we've said this a lot over the past several weeks about testing and how this has to be an, an integral part of it. We know over, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the Bundesliga. They're doing uh, regular tests on players after training, after games, everything. That has to be something that's at the forefront of it. And this quote from Gary Bettman kind of gives you that idea. He says, quote, I am told that there can be enough capacity, and certainly over the next couple of months there will be more capacity. But that is a fundamental question, and we certainly can't be jumping in line in front of medical needs, end quote. And, uh, again, that's... That's, I think, the first thing that has to be determined is what kind of testing opportunities and uh, everything else you're going to have for these players and staff when it does come back. The more testing, uh, you know, the better. I think everybody would feel a little bit more comfortable. I was watching a, an interview today on one of the local um, or major news outlets, and they were talking to a CEO of a, of a company, and, you know, he was talking about he'd like to see the U.S. get to the point where there was already 30 million tests out there and because uh, he felt like that would, you know, be a good starting point for people to you know, feel at ease but also have it readily accessible when you go to work or when you go to a sporting event that, you know, if you have to do a, a quick two- or three-minute test, it's not going to be a complete holdup. That was the thing that was going to be interesting if you allowed fans to come back is what's the protocol going to be in place uh, once these fans – to get there to get into the building now if we're talking about next year as when fans can come back and and go to the arena there there already may be a vaccine I, I think that might be the optimistic viewpoint on this but i think this year for sure that's not going to be an issue because i don't think any fans will be allowed in it will be interesting to see employees and and workers and and players how that all plays out and and we'll kind of go from there. 
Yeah, you know, I, like I found it interesting that Major League Baseball came out with their proposal, and um, you know, certainly the Athletic was all over uh, what those the, you know line by line. They got a copy of the memo, and the one thing that stood out to me was protocol for everybody in place. You know, where the coaches could sit, yeah. where the players would sit, where the uh, reserves would sit. They wouldn't be in the dugout. Everything would have to be, uh, you know, kept apart. And there was everything for everybody that's supposed to be there, except the media. You know, there was no talk about where would the press box still be open, how would the press box be set up. So there was no protocols for that. So I'm wondering how us on the media side of things would be presented in a situation to where the coverage is. Now, I know, again, I didn't watch a lot of the NASCAR yesterday, but I, I know I think there were only four writers that were allowed uh, in Darlington, which is where the race took place yesterday, one of them was uh, AP writer. Uh, I think another one was another national writer, and then two local writers, and that was it. That was the only media coverage that they were getting. So I don't wonder where that's going to fall in the line yeah. with all this, and what kind of protocols they have to go through. Just to be, even even though there's no contact, there's certainly going to be no direct contact there. Uh, in in the case of um, NASCAR, they're behind you know the the closed windows, so there's no interaction with with the drivers or anybody from pit. Uh, pit crew or anything like that, but uh, where does all like there's just so many logistics to have to figure out for how how all of this is going to work? Yeah, and I'm I'm also wondering too. Uh, before we sign off, Yuri, I'm wondering with our audience, how many of them would be comfortable going to a game now as opposed to where they were two months ago? You know, things are starting to open up right now. Testing is is getting there. It's not readily available to everyone yet, but it's it's getting there. And I'm curious now, knowing what you know now of this virus, has it changed your willingness to go out uh, in the public and you know to a sporting event if you were given that option? I think that might be fun to to debate with our audience at some point. Well, I know from my standpoint, I I think I would still be a little leery about being in a large crowd. Um, even if I took the precautions that I know I need to take, um, you know, I still see so many people out in the stores without masks. And I, I think that the, the point kind of gets lost on a lot of people. The mask isn't necessarily to protect you. It's to protect right. me. It's to protect me from you because I don't know if you're symptomatic or asymptomatic in any capacity. And that's why I'd be a little leery right now going out in large crowds. I, I think eventually as treatments and vaccines and medicine and science catches up with it, my attitudes might change uh, a little bit, but I, I don't know, like right now, if I would be necessarily comfortable in going to a sporting event with 15,000 people uh, uh, under what the circumstances are, you know, like uh, Disney Springs is supposed to open back up uh, on Wednesday, you know, to s- certain restrictions. And one of them is, is anybody going to Disney Springs is required to wear a mask. And, I, you know, reading the comments under that, there's already so much pushback. Uh, from people that say, though, well, I'm not going then. If I have to wear a mask, I'm not going. And that's what would worry me a little bit is what precautions are you taking to prevent, you know, to help me out? Because that's what it all, the mask all comes down to. It's not helping me, it's helping you. Yep. And there's going to be a risk, you know, regardless. At some point, I think we're just going to have to weigh the risk and the reward. I think people are starting to do that, but I still think a lot of people are kind of in a wait-and-see approach. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, with all of that. Now, tomorrow, E, we've got Eric Francis from Sportsnet, I do nope. believe. Nope. And tomorrow we have Jay Feaster. Jay Feaster. That's Jay, right. we have Jay Feaster, Feaster will tomorrow. join us tomorrow. 
That's yep. right. We'll uh, we'll Eric talk Francis to him about the uh, yeah Eric Francis on Wednesday, uh, but we'll talk to Jay tomorrow about the 2004 Stanley Cup reunion that they just had with Game Seven having been broadcast on Saturday night. But we'll also talk to Jay about what might even make him just as proud, if not more proud, and that's the accomplishments of his daughter Teresa, who is we yes. mentioned last week, the first female to be named to a coaching staff for Team USA's World Junior. Uh, team that will hopefully take the ice in December of 2020 into January 2021. So Jay Feaster on the show tomorrow. That'll be a lot of fun. And uh, of course, hit us up on Twitter at Bolts Radio throughout. And we will be with you again tomorrow, noon to one. E, good stuff as always. Thanks to uh, Brian Engblom as well. All right, Greg, everybody, uh, make sure you stay safe out there. Uh, we'll be back at it tomorrow. Thanks to Steve Verznick. Uh, thanks to you, Greg. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow at noon.